Now, I don't know if uh, you've noticed uh, recently, but there seems to be a precipitous decline in the morals of society. Maybe I'm the only one who noticed. But it's, uh, it's, it's not, a, not a good situation, you know. And to be fair, sin is present in every society. In all of human history, sin has been present. But what we're seeing in our society as of late is a proliferation of unnatural sin. Sin that goes against the very natural order that God has created. For example, there seems to be a, a huge number, a growing number, percentage, a growing percentage of adults that have come to believe the lie that their sexuality as a male or as a female means nothing. And then these people are even turning around and with their uh, degenerate minds are instructing children who don't know any better. It's like we're seeing Romans chapter 1 lived out before our very eyes. In that passage in verse 26, it says, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who do such things are not not only uh, worthy of death, they, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Our society seems to be fulfilling this before our very eyes. But you know, our society is not the first one to ever have to deal with unnatural sin and the proliferation of it. In fact, we see it in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, and I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to read and study verses 1 through 8. And God's Word, as always, speaks to our situation today, and it is our choice whether we will listen. So let me uh, first just read this passage, because some of it will come across as a little bit strange. In Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, we read, When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind and bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. 
Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, the creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with God. Now, if you were to read this passage for the very first time, you might be thinking, what in the world is going on here? I mean, you've got uh, sons of God, daughters of men. You have this corruption that's going on on the earth. You have these uh, Nephilim, whatever that is. And there seems to be all types of wickedness and judgment from the Lord. And there have been many interpretations over the centuries. And, you know, I was always taught in uh, college and in seminary uh, in my preaching classes, whatever you do, when you teach or preach on a passage, pick one interpretation and preach it. And so that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach one interpretation and then I'm going to preach another one. There's a bunch of interpretations of this passage, okay? But they are so varied and so different, I want to give you uh, some options, if you will, on how to interpret it. Both of these interpretations have application to our lives today, and there is, uh, in either interpretation, this decline into what is ultimately going to be the, the judgment, the judgment of the flood. So, interpretation number one. Verse, back to verse 1, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them. Now, if you're paying attention uh, to last week, we read on, and all the begats. Remember the begats? And all of the begats, and, and with every person who was begat, it said they had multiple sons and daughters, sons and daughters, sons and daughters, over and over again, sons and daughters. But now, in verse 1 of chapter 6, there seems to be a focus on the daughters. What's the deal? It says when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them. And so when something seems out of place, it, it means we may want to take notice that it's there for a reason. And, uh, and so we're going to get back to this idea of the daughters in just a second. But I want you to notice another word in verse 1. It says began. The word began. Now, you know, it's a simple word in English. Uh, but what that means in the Hebrew is simply this. When something began, it doesn't just mean it started to happen, but sometimes it literally means this, that there was a break in what happened before. And something brand new is happening now. And so this might be a verse that has not only something to do with population growth, but also a break or a renouncing of the traditions that were established, even established by God himself. In fact, didn't we already sort of see this thing in chapter 4? You remember in chapter 4 we have uh, Cain's line, his descendants, and you get all the way down to this guy named Lamech. And Lamech jumps off the page. Why? Because he decides he's going to have two wives, not just one, as the tradition from God had established itself to that point. But he's so important, he's so full of himself, he's going to have two wives. And he tells his family, hey, by the way, if anyone happens to murder me, avenge, that, avenge my murder 77 times. I'm worth 77 people. That's me right there. So you have this guy Lamech, he's already breaking tradition. The tradition handed down by God himself. And so uh, there, there may be some, some type of indication here. There's a break with tradition, and then we come to the word multiply. The word multiply, uh, is, we can't tell it in English, 
but in the Hebrew, it shares a word, a root with the word argue. Okay? And if we were to take these two ideas together, um, we, we might understand it this way. And what you're going to see on the screen is not a translation, but an interpretation at the bottom. It says, when mankind began to abandon traditional values and to multiply on the earth, mankind, they also became very argumentative. And daughters were born to them. This verse and this interpretation could very well be teaching that when mankind uh, abandons all sense of moral framework and abandons the wisdom of previous generations and they began not to see each other as partners and building some, something great and fulfilling, fulfilling the earth, but rather they see each other as competitors and enemies and they argue with one another. And then these men have these daughters, and these daughters, we learned, were very beautiful daughters. But these beautiful daughters would have, by this time, in this interpretation, been raised in a world full of brutish, overly aggressive men who followed their most base instincts. How do you think these women, these young ladies, are going to fare in such a society? Well, we read in verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Who are these sons of God? Well, as you probably already know, the word God is the word Elohim. And the word Elohim, depending on its context, might refer to the Lord God himself. It might refer to higher, uh, higher than us spiritual beings, lesser than God, but higher than us spiritual beings that are out there, angels or something like that. Or sometimes the word Elohim in the scriptures even refers to humans. And context is the key to determine how it should be understood. And so in this interpretation, the term sons of God would be interpreted sort of like this, the sons of powerful men, the sons of royalty, the sons of the elite of society. And then in contrast, you have the daughters of mankind. Who would the daughters of mankind be at, the, at this point? Well, they'd be the daughters of ordinary folk, regular old people. And so you, you might have this type of interpretation that the sons of the powerful men saw that the daughters of ordinary people were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. What's wrong with this? What you have is you have the elites of society, the upper class of society, simply choosing the most beautiful, the most uh, outwardly wonderful women for themselves. What's wrong with that? Here's what's wrong with that. God designed marriage to be the union of two unselfish people. A husband who devotes himself to his wife. And a wife who devotes herself to her husband. When selfishness is brought in, when someone decides to get married because of this attitude, what can she do for me. That marriage is headed headlong into disaster. Love, by its very nature, 
is unselfish. And love is obviously a key component of a healthy marriage. But instead, in this day, he had all of these elites in this interpretation picking out women, and they're all basically saying, I want that one for my pleasure. I want to see what she can do for me. The Lord disapproves of, of, of such selfishness because it destroys the very nature of marriage. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. God is basically saying, Mankind is completely disregarding my plan. Mankind is disrupting my order of things. Man is becoming increasingly corrupt. I'm going to give humans 120 years to figure this out before I wipe them out. Well, then we get to verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Again, who in the world are these Nephilim? Well, they have to do with anything. Well, the word Nephilim means fallen ones. And according to this interpretation, the fallen ones would be the children. The children born to these selfish men who marry these weak women. They have kids, and these kids, they're not going to turn out so good. When you have a marriage that's filled with selfishness and egoism, the kids are not going to turn out very good. There's exceptions here and there, to be sure. God can reach in and, and grab a hold of anyone, even in the worst of circumstances. But generally speaking, these kids are going to be corrupt themselves, fallen ones, if you will. And so notice that this happens continually. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. One generation corrupting another generation, and the generation that follows that is even more corrupt than the one before. Now, notice something else that happened uh, if we were to compare verses 2 and 4. On, in verses 2 and 4, we have this interesting little dynamic. And back in verse 2, it says, The sons, this is the interpretation again, the sons of the powerful men saw that the daughters of ordinary people were beautiful, and they took in as they chose as wives for themselves. And then in verse 4, this interpretation would say, when the sons of powerful men came to the daughters of ordinary people, something's missing in verse 4 that was there in verse 2. Wives. What happened to the wives? What once began with marriage now has devolved into an attitude where society said, who needs marriage? I mean, what's the point? I mean, if people are going to be selfish anyway, let's just be selfish and have a relationship with somebody else. Let's just sort of hook up, and if it doesn't work out, we can move out. Split things up. Who needs marriage anyway? Let's just have sexual pleasure with no responsibility whatsoever. You have an epidemic of powerful men seizing women for their own selfish desires. And so you, women are seen by these powerful men as what? Objects. Sexual objects to be seduced and then discarded. And the young women, they're, they're clueless. 
They believe their boyfriend when he says, Baby, I'll love you. I promise I'll love you. I'll be here for you. No, he won't. Why? Because these are evil men who see women as nothing more than objects of seduction. No responsibility. No responsibility whatsoever. And soon you're going to have children without fathers. Whatever you want, society says, you can have it. No responsibility required. Don't even worry about it. I mean, have you ever heard of such a debauched society as that? Who in the world could imagine having to live in such wickedness and corruption, rampant throughout society? I wonder what the Lord thinks of such a society like that. I wonder what God will do. Here's what the Lord thinks in verses 5 and 6. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. The moral of the story in this interpretation is this. When you follow your own way instead of God's, destruction is not far behind. The patience of God will not last forever. And that is a very true and very powerful lesson indeed. There is, however... Another interpretation. Interpretation number two. Going back to verses one and two. We read, When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Who are the sons of God? According to this interpretation, well... According to this interpretation, the sons of God are going to be angelic beings or spiritual beings, lesser spiritual beings, lesser than God, beings that God has created that live in the heavenly realm, live in uh, the invisible spiritual realm that you and I don't see with our physical eyes, and that these angelic beings left their proper abode, they left the spiritual realm, and they manifested themselves with human bodies physical bodies on earth, and they took women to be their own wives. And you might say, that is far out. I mean, that is some good science fiction right there. That would make an incredible movie, wouldn't it? I mean, you can, you can, Hollywood can't make that stuff up, right? Well... I want to show you why I believe that this interpretation is even more true than the first. Now, who are the sons of men? Well, that phrase, sons of men, it only occurs in five passages in the Hebrew Bible. It occurs twice in this passage. And then it occurs in Job chapter 1, 
And also Job chapter 2. We're going to count that as two different passages. In both of those passages in Job, the sons of God, that phrase there, it refers to angelic beings. God is in heaven. The sons of God are around him. And then God and Satan have a discussion. So God is in his heavenly court surrounded by angelic beings, and they are called the sons of God. And Job chapter 1, verse 6, and Job chapter 2, verse 1. And then you fast forward to Job chapter 38, verse 7. And God is having a discussion with Job. And it's not much of a discussion because Job doesn't have much to say. God has is, God is given it to Job. And God is saying to Job, after all of Job's complaining, all throughout the book of Job, God is saying to Job this, Where were you when I created the world and the sons of God sang for joy? Obviously, in that verse, sons of God refers to angelic beings. I mean, because there were no humans on the earth when God was creating the earth, right? Then the final passage where the term sons of God are used, or son of God is used, is in Daniel chapter 3, verse 25. Remember that? King Nebuchadnezzar, he gets fed up. He gets fed up with that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. He's not going to put up with it anymore. He orders them thrown into the furnace. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, and King Nebuchadnezzar looks in through the window of the fiery furnace, and he says, hold on. How many guys did we put in that furnace? Three, king. I see four. And one of them looks like a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar would have understood that to be some type of divine being that was beyond his realm of understanding. These three have some divine presence in there. And he called them that fourth one, a son of God. Looks like a son of God. Here's the point. Every other time the phrase sons of God is used in the Hebrew Bible, it refers to some type of divine being. This is very strong evidence that that's what we have in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 6. Not only that, we have the evidence of the New Testament. In the New Testament, in 2 Peter, Peter is writing to a bunch of Christians that are facing persecution. I mean, it's going to get bad. And Peter says, hold on. Hold on, boys. It's going to get tough. We're going to have, we're going to, have to face persecution. We're going to have people that call themselves Christians that fall away from the faith. Peter says, we're going to have people that call themselves Christians who deny Christ. We're going to have people who call themselves Christians that, that leave the faith and they deny Christ when the persecution comes. And Peter says that people are going to deny the gospel. False teachers are going to come into the church. They're going to come into the church. They're going to bring with their false teaching corruption, destruction of the people of God. It's going to get bad. And so how does Peter writing to these Christians, these warnings, how does he say to them, how does he reassure them that they're going to be okay? Here's how he does it. He points them to the Old Testament. 
to the Hebrew Scriptures. And he basically says this lesson. If God protected the faithful back then, God will protect the faithful now. Great lesson. And what Scripture does he turn to? He turns to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. In 2 Peter chapter 2, here's what he says in verses 4 and 5. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly, Peter's going to make the case he'll protect us too. According to Peter, these are angels who sinned. Then we turn to the book of Jude. Jude is very similar to Peter, both dealing with false teachers who might come into the church and, and disrupt and even mislead the, the godly. And Jude is only a chapter long, and so in, in Jude verses 6 and 7, Jude has a similar concern, and he turns to the same passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 6. And here's what it, Jude says. He says, And the angels who did not keep their position but abandoned, their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Someone might say, well, couldn't that refer to angels, you know, who rebelled against God and fell and, and they turned into demons, that type of thing? Uh, specifically, Jude's referring to Genesis chapter 6. Why? Because he compares the angels' activity to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at the next verse. He says, likewise, just like the angels. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, they did just like the angels. They committed sexual immorality and perversions. And they serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Both Second Peter and Jude are telling us that if God delivered people, God delivered the faithful, from even the strangest types of sexual perversions back then, God will deliver us as well. We must be faithful. We must be the people who say no to all of the sexual perversions and false teachings of society. Now, someone might say, well, what about Jesus? You know, didn't Jesus say something about that's impossible? You know, Jesus talked about angels and marriage and, you know, you, 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 can't, you can't have that, right? Well, look carefully what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. Jesus is talking to the faithful and he's saying in the resurrection. In other words, when, we're, when, when you and I are resurrected from the dead and we're given resurrected bodies, this is what Jesus is talking about. He says, for in the resurrection... They, resurrected people, neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I mean, doesn't that just prove it right there from Jesus' lips that it's impossible for angels to, to do this type of thing that you're talking about in Genesis 6? Actually, no. Read it carefully. Jesus is saying that when we as believers are resurrected, we will not marry because we will be like angels Where? In heaven. The angels in heaven don't marry. But what did Jude explicitly say? There were some type of spiritual beings, angelic beings, who left their proper abode. 
And they came to earth and committed unspeakable acts. There's no contradiction, contradiction between Jesus and Jude. When you take the sons of God phrase, as I believe it should be interpreted in the light of other scripture, this would be the interpretation that you see on the screen. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, that is, these lesser divine beings, saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Then verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt, their days will be 120 years. And what's this deal about the Nephilim in the next verse? Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. When the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Who are these Nephilim? Some people say who, who adopt this idea of the sons of God being uh, these spiritual beings that cohabitated with women. They say, well, the Nephilim are the children produced by the, these angel and, and uh, human relations. Uh, but I, I think that may not be the correct interpretation of who the Nephilim are, because verse 4 says that the Nephilim were both in those days and afterwards. When that phrase is used in the Hebrew Scriptures, it means they were already present and they continued to be present, meaning the Nephilim were already around before this terrible event with the angels and the women took place. And we have a clue as to why they might be why Moses, who's writing this, might be addressing this. It's in the last sentence. It's a brand new sentence. It says, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. This sentence is uh, sort of set apart because it's, a, it's an explainer. It's like a footnote. So here's the situation. Moses is writing this. And who's he writing it to? He's writing it to the very first generation of Israelites that are with him at that time. The ancient Israelites. These ancient Israelites, they would have heard about the Nephilim. I mean, the Nephilim were sort of uh, out there in the public arena, out there in the mind. In other words, you hear about your neighbors, right? They heard about their neighbors. They heard about the Edomites, the Moabites. They heard about the Nephilim as well. And they heard a lot of bad things about the Nephilim. These guys are giants. They're like cyclops. They eat people. They got one big eye on the forehead. They're the children of angels. We can never defeat them. They're not even human. And so Moses, needing to deal with this idea of who the Nephilim are, he basically says, yes, there was a great time of, uh, there was a time of great wickedness when evil spiritual beings cohabitated with women, but, but the Nephilim were already there. The Nephilim were there beforehand, and they were there afterwards. And so Moses is basically saying to the Israelites, these Nephilim are not the byproduct of angels and women. So what do we have with this interpretation, big picture? Here's what we have. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. Genesis 2, God creates mankind. He creates marriage. Genesis 3, the man and the woman fall. They sin against God. This starts a long cascade, a spiral into further degeneration. Genesis chapter 4, death comes into the world, even murder comes into the world. Cain's descendants, it finally uh, 
ends up with this guy named Lamech, who t- takes things so far he has two wives, and he thinks his own life is worth 77 others. And then we have another set of, set of genealogy, and in, in, uh, genealogies in uh, chapter 5, and that's the descendants of Seth. And even though there's a scarlet thread of redemption through which God will eventually bring the Savior, the one who will crush the serpent's head, generation after generation continues into further decline until we come to another man named Lamech, a different man. And this Lamech, he says, Finally, I had a child who was born after Adam died. Maybe the curse of God on the ground from Adam's sin will die with Adam. And Noah represented the first generation to come after Adam died. And so Lamech said, I'm going to name my child Rest. I'm going to name him Noah. Because now the land will be plentiful and we won't have to work it so hard. We can rest. And just like the Lamech of chapter 4, this Lamech believes he can get something for nothing. He believes the ground is just going to produce fruit, and he's wrong. And then society continues into this further degradation to the point that perhaps even Angels leave their abode and come to the earth, manifest themselves in physical bodies, and cohabitate with women. And the Lord says, I've had enough. I've had enough. And so we read in verses 5 and 6, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. What a depressing story. Corrupt men, wicked angels, God is displeased, scary enemies, and finally in the end, God is going to wipe everything and everyone out. But there's one small ray of hope for humanity. It's found at the end of this first large section of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah tells us something very important, much like Enoch in the previous chapter. Noah tells us, young people, listen to me, that no matter how bad society gets, you can have favor with God. You devote yourself to the Lord, and you can have favor with Him. How can I find favor with God? Only through faith. Listen to me very carefully. The immorality that we see in society, it's a bad thing and it brings God's displeasure. 
we might be tempted to think, well, what would bring God pleasure? And we might answer that morality might bring God pleasure. Listen to me. You being moral will not bring you God's favor. Well, if people, if people went to church, wouldn't God like that? Sure, God would like that. That's a good thing. But you going to church does not bring you the favor of God. Those are byproducts of something else. The only thing that can bring God's favor upon you. And that's faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The worst thing in the world that could happen might be today. If you came to church thinking this will please God if I come to church. Or if you made a donation to church and you thought if I make a donation to, to, to church God will be pleased with that. And I'll be okay. Or if you left this place and you said I'm going to be moral this week because God will be pleased with that. And I'll escape the judgment by being moral. I'll escape the judgment by coming to church. I'll escape the judgment by giving a donation. Listen to me. All of those other things are good. However, you must have faith in the Son of God. Why can't my morality undo immorality? Because you're already corrupt. Your sin has already corrupted you. No amount of morality can undo the corruption that's already within your heart. The only thing that can cleanse you of that corruption is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in whom you are to put your faith. The question is simply this. Do you trust Jesus, the Son of God, who died on a cross to pay for your sins? Do you trust Him to save you? That determines your eternity.